Hey, welcome to Echo Church. Um, for those of you who, who may be visiting, uh, we are a church that is, um, I say this all the time, we're on the ground. In other words, we believe that if God has given us certain instructions and he's saying you need to love people, you need to have mercy for people, you need to, you know, be patient with people, then you need to live it out. And we're very intent on what it means to live out that faith. We're called Echo because really we are a resonation of uh, what's been given to us, the love of God literally flows through us to the people around us. Many times we think that we're the source of that love. Well, in some sense, I suppose, but really, ultimately, that love that we experience actually comes from God. We were created in His image, and God is love. So um, that is who we are, just in a brief nutshell. Um, Happy Father's Day. I have a special treat for you. It's called A Very Short Sermon. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, it, honestly, it, it didn't shape up to be that way at all, so I'm going to give you a confession. It's funny, because we tell our leaders all the time, don't ever say this when you come up to give a talk for the Lord's Supper or whatever. Don't tell people, well, you know, I thought of this this morning. Last night, I scrapped the lesson. I didn't throw it away. I simply wasn't ready to deliver it. It's an important lesson. And it's one I've been working on for a long time. And I think what's interesting is, I think it's because of the amount of work that's gone into it, it made me extra nervous because I wanted to be just right before I then roll it out for the church. And there there came a point where eventually I said, you know what, I just, I can't do it. And so uh, you're going to have to wait until next week for that particular lesson. But I'm going to give you a a taste of of what you're in for. Um, Last week... We were dealing with a series that I uh, didn't know would become actually a three-week series, but it has to do with the heart, the idea of this thing that we call the heart. You know, we're always wondering, you know, well, I don't know if you're wondering, but what is the heart? What does it mean when we refer to somebody as, you know, his heart is not into it? Um, Or, you know, my heart is so full right now. What does that mean? Like, what are we talking about, you know? And so... We went to this particular series because this series of talking about what it means to have a heart and to be focused on the heart, specifically your heart, is such a fantastic primer for what comes next. So next week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be discussing how do you study God's Word? What does it mean to open up the text and to make sense of it? How do you take what's written on these pages and then apply them in such a way that it actually makes a difference in your life? Now, my job as a fifth-generation preacher, by the way, I don't know if you knew that or not. I certainly didn't count on that happening when I was younger. But, um, you know, my father's a fourth generation. I mean, what we do is we take what we have learned in God's Word, and then what we do is we try to communicate it in such a way that people of all different lifestyles, communication styles, different points in their journey, of, of their spiritual journey, you know, can receive it. It's difficult. It's also a lot of fun. Um, but when it comes to the idea of actually you yourself going into God's Word, it can be very intimidating. It also can lead to all sorts of dissension. So next week, what we're going to be talking about is how to interpret the Word of God. When I say the word interpret, it simply means that you're making sense of the Word of God. You're opening up this Bible, 
You're reading the words, and you're trying to make sense of what it says. It's a daunting task. If you feel that way, God bless you. You're, you're definitely not alone. I think everyone should feel that way. It's the word of God, okay? Uh, and so how do, we, how do we focus in on that? What tools do we have that will help us with our interpretation of the text? That's what we'll be discussing next week. I've given you some tools in the past, but I'd like to refresh your mind on some of those. I have uh, other material that I want to talk about, but also I really want to weigh in on what's happening in our culture today, specifically in our churches. We have this tremendous exodus of people leaving churches. Um, for a lot of you know, preachers like myself, it's something that weighs heavily on the heart. I think the ways in which we read the Bible will have an impact on that particular movement. Not, you know, it's not like our little church is going to create huge waves. But there has been an issue specifically that's been weighing on my heart for some time, and I'd like for us to discuss it. It is the issue of women's roles in the church. I've already told you this before. I told you this at the beginning of the year. What I would like for us to do is, as a church, explore God's word. Now, what I could do, which I do not feel is a healthy thing, is for me to stand up here and give you the conclusions that I have arrived at. There is a responsibility that God weighs upon myself and upon those of us who stand up here and deliver God's word. It's a very strict responsibility, and there's a lot of accountability to God that we will have to, when we face him, the things that we say we have to be accountable for. But I'd rather not. I would rather give you the journey of where my study has taken me, where the studies of our elders have, where the studies of my father has, and other people, and I want you to weigh in. I want you to look at it yourself. Your faith isn't based off of a guy who stands up here and then delivers to you what he believes to be God's truth. You should take the things that I tell you, scrutinize them, and challenge me. Some of you are very good at this. <laughs> it's a joke. Uh, kind of. <laughs> but, no, listen, I encourage it. I invite it. But we're about to wade into some very deep waters. And so, the lesson that I'm bringing to you today, it's actually one of the points that I took off of last week's lesson for the sake of time. What's funny is my son, Miles, he totally identified it. He goes, Dad, I thought you were going to talk about this subject. And I was so surprised. I said, did you see my notes? He goes, no, Dad, I just know you. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, well, that's great. But this idea of the heart is really important. One of the points that I've given you before when it comes to reading God's word, when it comes to developing your own interpretations of God's word, your theology, right? Theology is just the, the study of God. Is that your spirituality comes out of this place. In other words, your heart, if it has turned to stone, if it's callous, if it's filled with some of the infections that I'll review in just a second, if it's not primed correctly, then a dangerous thing can occur. You can take the Bible, God's word, and you can use it as a weapon. You can use it as a tool for your own benefit. You can warp the words of Scripture and twist them and turn them, Peter tells us this, to suit your own purposes. 
That's why this lesson is so incredibly important. You have to do some serious introspection of your own heart. Look, try not to think of it as the preacher's telling you this. Commit yourself to this. This is what I, I told you this last week, and I'll be honest with you. This week was ironic. Because I, 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 there was a ton of anger flying all over the place this week. I couldn't believe it, actually. I even stood at one point, I was like, is it ironic? Or should it have been expected? That if you're going to speak on anger, you're going to see a lot of it. Is Satan stirring the pot? Or as someone once told me, are the impurities coming to the surface? Think about this. How is the condition of your heart right now? I told you to pray a prayer. You'll find it in Psalm 51. And the psalmist says, create in me. This is David. Create in me, God, a clean heart. So what are we talking about? Well, I'm not going to go through all of the lesson that I, I went through before, but I'll just say this really quick. Um, the concept of the heart is referred to throughout literature, not just the Bible, but throughout all literature. It's, it's like this strange thing that we keep referring to, and it's a little bit ambiguous. Nobody really knows. It involves the intellect. It involves the emotion. Many times it involves something ethical, the, mor the, the morality of the situation. But usually the way that the ancients referred to it is they call it the heart because they were aware that there is an organ deep inside of your chest that is very important and it's central. You can't see it, but it's deep inside there. And so it automatically became figurative for all sorts of different nations to refer to it as the heart, to refer to this strange sense of who you are as the heart, including the Hebrew nation. And so, in the Bible, you'll find the heart referred to over a thousand times. Jesus talks about the heart all the time. And what do we do with it? Well, what we do is simply this. I believe that we surrender our hearts to God. In Matthew, Jesus is asked what are the greatest commands, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Give the whole thing to him. I think it's a reflection of a previous proverb where the proverb says, in, uh, in Proverbs 23, he says, give me your heart, my, give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. In other words, you have this father who's almost pleading with this kiddo. He's kind of like, please just, you know what? Give, give me your heart. Trust me with it. And in the same way, I see, you know, Jesus is saying, you want the greatest command of all? Love God. Give your heart completely and fully to him. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. We read a little bit from Ezekiel and, and how uh, God was speaking through Ezekiel to the nations and he was saying to the nations, listen, you've rejected me. In fact, you've rejected me in such an atrocious way that the surrounding peoples have made fun of me because of the way that you're living your life. That's a very big paraphrase. You can look it up yourself. It's in Ezekiel, start about 32 or so. It, it's fascinating because that's what he's telling Ezekiel to tell them. But then God is saying this. He's saying, but then tell them I'll return. I will return because I want the nations around to see my glory. I'm not going to let your rejection of me somehow fade the tarnish of my glory. So I will return to you. And these are the words that he says. He says, moreover, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a tender heart. 
instead of one made out of stone. And you see this sentiment happening again and again and again. I believe John the Baptist preceded Jesus Christ because he was preparing the way. But what was he preparing? He's preparing hearts. What was his message? Repent. Turn back. Look at all the evil that you're doing in your life and make a resolution. I'm done with it. I'm going to turn back. Now that alone is not going to save you. But John is just simply preparing their hearts. Because by the time Jesus comes on the scene, he's preaching in such a way that his teachings are difficult, which we're going to see in just a second. And, it's, and, and, he, and he says all the time, he's like, let those who can hear, who, let those who have ears, may they hear. And he's talking about their heart. Is it susceptible? Is it soft? So the problem is this, is that when we really take a good, honest look at the heart that we have, we know that there are some infections. There are certain diseases that have made their way into our heart. I mean, if we're, if we're going to be honest. Last week, we looked at a few of those, and so I'll just blast through them. We looked at um, infection number one, which is shame. Shame's a tough one. Shame comes from a number of different places. Shame can come from your own decisions, but guess what? Shame can come from the decisions, the bad decisions that people have made toward you. I've, I've told you many times I'm a CASA. That's a court-appointed special advocate. It's for kids who are in the foster care system. Kids who are in the foster care system are there for a reason. They have experienced either neglect or abuse. And as I've told you before, neglect is actually worse than abuse, believe it or not. Abuse simply means I don't like you. Neglect means you don't exist. That has all sorts of trauma that results in shame. And it shapes the heart that's inside. It's a, it's a fantastic reminder of how your life is connected so intimately with so many other lives. In what ways are we creating perhaps elements of shame? This is why we're, we're always talking about bullying and, and, and the, the things that kids are having to experience through school. How does it reflect upon their heart? And then upon yours as well. The difference between guilt and shame, I like uh, Ted Roberts in Pure Desire, he says this, guilt is, I did something wrong. Shame is, I am something wrong. You see, what happens is, is when we do something wrong, we'll feel guilty about it, but then we'll do it again and again and again, and gradually, guilt transforms into something much, much worse, and that is shame. Guilt should actually provoke us to repent. I mean, it's there for a reason. You have a conscience for a reason. We want you to feel bad when you have done something wrong, right? But what happens when it continues to cycle out of control? What's the, what's the solution? The solution is this, that we surround ourselves with people who are willing to come so close into our vicinity that we have someone to talk to, that we have someone to confess to, that we're able to look at the things, the sin that we have, and confess them. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession has the power to break and to cure that infection of shame. The second infection was this, it's anger. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. And last week we went through all six of those. It was really fun. Uh, it's kind of funny because after the lesson, uh, I, you know, I had given a, a few Greek words that were used in that particular 
passage, and the, the Greek word for wrath I pronounced as thymos. And a couple kids came up, and they were like, why didn't you just say Thanos, you know, because uh, they were big Avenger fans. But uh, it's actually pronounced uh, thumos. So I looked it up, and it's called thumos. But essentially, wrath is, is this, this anger that boils over. It, it takes complete control. You're suddenly out of control with this explosive thing that's, that's called wrath. But Paul goes through all six different kinds, and he, he talks about how damaging all of this is. Of course, then we also talked a little bit about good anger, because some anger is quite good. If you are fighting for God, that's good anger. We see that with Jesus several times. If you have a frustration that is the result of an injustice, that's a good frustration. That's a good anger. Even the psalmist talks about it, and he begs the Lord. He's like, arise, O Lord, in anger, and stand up against the fury of my enemies, and wake up, my God, and bring justice. Okay? That's good. Because that's what we're fighting for. We want there to be justice in this world. There's also slander and malice, and we talked about that as well. But eventually, the the bottom line is this, is that anger left untended, that infection will spread throughout the heart. It'll be a cancer. It'll take control, complete control. There's a fantastic scene. I didn't quote this last week, but uh, there's this, this shelf of movies that I have Um, that all have a moral point that I really, really love. And sometimes I'm wondering if Hollywood even knew that the moral point was in there. But still, (coughs) I I find all these different uh, movies that have this, and one of them is called Changing Lanes. I don't know if you've seen it. It's it's a movie uh, with Ben Affleck and then Samuel Jackson. And Samuel Jackson plays the role of a father who's an alcoholic. Actually, he's a recovering alcoholic. Uh, who's just trying to get his life back on track. And Ben Affleck is a very wealthy lawyer, and the, and their, their lives cross in kind of a violent way. And they find themselves sort of pitted against each other. And I'm not going to tell you any more in terms of how it, how it pans out. But Samuel Jackson is perfect for this role because he keeps finding himself losing control with this guy, with Ben Affleck's character. And he collides with him again and again to the point that he eventually gets thrown in jail. And his sponsor from the AA program comes and bails him out. Samuel Jackson is actually kind of surprised that it was him. He was surprised he was even, you know, bailed out of jail at the time. And he comes out and the sponsor grabs him as they leave the building. And the sponsor says, all right, come on, let's go to a meeting. And Samuel Jackson goes, no, we're not going, I'm not going to a meeting. He's, he's just burning with rage. And the sponsor, he can't take it anymore. And he says to him, he goes, you know what your problem is? Your problem is, is this isn't your addiction. Booze is not your addiction. Your drug of choice is chaos. It's disaster. And he's referring to the anger that's just burning him up. That's his drug. That's what he's addicted to. And I love that line because it describes so, I think, eloquently what happens to the human heart. That anger left unintended, it just consumes you. Have you found yourself in that place? I encourage you now, if we're going to walk into the deep waters of theology, you've got to take care of that. How will you do that? Just like with uh, this idea of shame, you draw close to people. The solution is this. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind to one another and tender-hearted and forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave you. 
You have to practice forgiveness. And my belief is this, that we do that side by side. Is it possible to hold each other to a certain element of forgiveness towards others? I think we can. Many times I think we kick against it. The world wants, us to, wants to say, hey, listen, you mind your own business, right? The truth is we were made to be in community. So why wouldn't you leverage that to deal with this particular infection of the heart? And the third infection is this, it's greed. Um, greed is kind of interesting because you see anger is easy to identify, but it's perhaps the most destructive infection of the heart. But greed is difficult to identify. Nobody ever prides themselves or perhaps even says, well, you know, I'm greedy. I'm very greedy, you know. Nobody says that. And if you were to tell somebody else that they were greedy, it'd be easy to defend against. I'm sure there would be all sorts of examples of the philanthropic spirit that they have, you know, that they gave money to the, to the red, you know, bucket outside the guy ringing the bell on Christmas, you know, whatever it might be to disguise it. The problem is this, is that greed finds itself erupting like a volcano when you least expect it. Greed is simply the idea that I feel like this is owed to me, like I deserve this. That's why it's deceptive. See, I, sometimes I think of, we, we think of greed like, oh, I just want this. You know what, I really want that. Well, that's a kind of greed, I suppose. But the destructive greed is that you feel as though something's been owed to you or that you owe it to yourself and you keep that spirit going, where you know what? I just want to absorb. James 4 says this, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And then I spoke with you briefly just about how many times greed doesn't take physical form. It takes a non-physical form. If I were to look at the culture today, I would see greed all over the place. But it's greed in the sense of perhaps attention. I want people to notice me. Right? I want people to notice me. So I'm going to dress in a way that I get noticed. I'm going to have things done to my body in a way that I get noticed. I'm going to adopt a certain humor. I'm going to talk a certain way. Whatever it is, whatever tools that you think you can deploy so that the attention is focused back on you. Hey, that's greed. Affirmation. Affirmation's a big one. But affirmation's fascinating to me because with social media, it's never been more contagious. The idea that we want a certain number of likes. We're going to post something, and if it only gets about, you know, five then we're depressed about it, right? It affects us. But boy, when we get 200, it's a dopamine kick. Suddenly we're feeling good, right? But the idea that people like me, that people, that, that, that people are responding to me, that they feel as though I have some sense of value. Attraction, I want to be attractive. We go on extreme diets. What about significance? I want to feel important. I want people to believe that I have impact in the world, and I was kind of addressing some of our older generations, because, you know, it's at that time you're like, oh my goodness, I've had a pretty good life, everything's gone well, but I still feel empty, and I really, I just, I want to make a lasting impact on the world. Now, I'm not accusing people in this room, it might be you, but I think people in general, I think a lot of people in general 
are trying to figure out, how do I have some significance? Well, I'm going to leave some type of an impact before I leave this, this world. I also talked briefly about solitude. But the infection number four is this. The infection that Miles was able to identify. Fear. Fear. It's too big of a topic for just one lesson, but don't worry. We're definitely going to be on track next week. Fear is a tough, tough issue. Those of you who know me, you know, I, I say this often. I say, you know, hey, Satan's walking around with two weapons, one in each hand. One is pride, and the other is fear. I think he just goes to town on all sorts of people with those two weapons. He destroys hearts with those two weapons. But the one I want to just talk about real quick is fear. Uh, Columnist Dave Barry writes these words. He says, all of us are born with a set of instinctive fears of falling, of the dark, of lobsters, of falling on lobsters in the dark, (laughs) or of the words, some assembly required. (laughs) The Bible talks about fear quite a bit. It's mentioned about 266 times. The word afraid is mentioned about 223 times. I counted all of those. Uh, I'm just kidding. But it's, it finds its mention in Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's something that permeates us in so many different ways. These days you might hear the word anxious more than you hear the word fear or anxiety. You know, I'm having some anxiety, right? And the two are so intricately linked with each other. Anxiety has more to do with the fear of something that might be impossible perceptible or perhaps even imaginative. In other words, it's not quite there. It might be fear is the actual presence of whatever the threat might be. Now, that's just generally speaking. You can go back and forth with that. I'll tell you this. (laughs) Earlier this week, I was downstairs in my son's room, and I'm talking with my son, Miles, and he points, and there's a spider on the floor. It's about the size of a quarter, and uh, it starts walking across towards his bed. So he reaches down, and with his thumb, he squishes it. <laughs> Wipes it on his pants. <laughs> That's my kid. And I, w- and I, saw, I was like, Miles, you're kind of crazy. He goes, Dad, do you see how big I am? And, you know, how small this spider is? I said, yeah, but did you know that if I said the word arachnophobia to anybody else on the planet, they would know exactly what I'm talking about? I said the fear of spiders is like one of the greatest fears that we have, right? And here my son is squishing him with his thumb. I was so impressed with him at the time. Isaiah 41 says this. It says, don't be afraid. I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. It's fascinating, the fears that we have, whether it's spiders, whether it's the dark, how many clown Fear, fear clown, no one, I thought that'd be like on top of the list. Yeah, okay, thank you. Whatever the fears are, what does it mean to surrender ourselves? What does it mean to find courage in God? How do we do that? Where does that come from? Second Timothy tells us God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a, a, a spirit of power and love and, and discipline. Mary Roach is an American author. She writes these words. She says, I don't fear death so much as I fear its prologues. Loneliness, decrepitude, pain, debilitation, depression, senility. After a few years of those, I imagine death presents like a holiday at the beach. It's fascinating because 
deep inside of all of us, there is this strong insecurity that we have. I bring this to the surface, not to dive too deep into this subject. It's, it's, it, it is a bottomless pit. But to say that when you approach the word of God, what does fear do? Does it find itself in any of that? I personally think that it does. I think many times what happens is, is we look at um, the Bible as this daunting task, but also there's this underlying fear that we really don't want to make God mad. That there's this fear that, you know what, if I, if I read this one thing wrong, I mean, what, what might happen? Sometimes I think we feel as though our, our souls are in jeopardy of hell if we find ourselves disagreeing with a, a piece of text that we suddenly notice that we've never disagreed with before. But can you understand what the opposite of that might be? Do you really think we should approach the Bible as if we've got it all figured out? What does that breed? Arrogance? Maybe the other weapon that Satan holds? Is it possible that pride comes into the equation? Where's the balance between the two? I would say this. I think what fear should bring to the table is a natural humility that goes into reading God's word. The idea, and we'll discuss this a little bit next week, the idea that, guess what? Trust what you believe, but also be willing to admit, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. For some of you, that is a terrifying concept. That we would take God's word and express any sense of doubt? No, no, listen. I'm not saying that you express this doubt in God's word. I'm saying you stand upon how you've learned things so far, but that you also exercise a measure of humility that, guess what? If another person points out part of our interpretation is erroneous, or maybe they show us a better interpretation, or maybe they show us something we've never seen in another part of the Bible, are we going to stand with our pride or stand with our fear and at least not give it a chance. I guarantee you this. No one's going to hell for at least just listening and trying to understand the perspective. Are you following me? Even now, some people are getting nervous. How does fear play a role in Scripture? It it seems as though, aren't we supposed to know and have uh, a, a sense that God would lead us straight to the truth? Yeah, well, you should open up your Bible specifically into Deuteronomy. I challenge you. Deuteronomy 20 through 23. Those are some tough Bible passages. If your kid disobeyed, according to Deuteronomy, if your kid was rebellious, beyond reproach, what you are instructed to do is to take him to the center of town or somewhere where then people pick up rocks and do what? Stone them. I, I, I don't think we practice that anymore. How do you reconcile that? Is, is, it, is it a different God that wrote that? And then my favorite thing, this is what uh, a, lot, a lot of people that, that come out of my, my strain of religion, you know, Church of Christ, this is what they do. Oh, well, that's Old Testament. Somehow we use this, this, this covering as though, eh, irrelevant, you know? And so we're going to put that over here but then we'll pick and choose the, the, the pieces of the Old Testament that we find to be relevant. Do you have the courage 
Does your heart have the courage to look at Scripture, to look at difficult Scripture with fresh eyes? I'm, listen, try not to think of this as a sermon. I, I'm literally begging you. I want you to come to the table with patience and humility. I, I want you to put away the fear that you might have that we're going down the wrong path. Nothing's been decided. We are going to explore together. And it might have you asking questions you haven't asked before. It might have you reading things you've never read before. It might have you seeing things you've never seen before. What will you do with that? Jesus was no stranger to this type of controversy. I'm just going to blast through this and we're going to close up because I promised you a short lesson. John 6. John 6 is a great chapter. It starts with the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, most people already know this. The people are hungry. Jesus has been preaching probably too long. And the people are like, we got to have something to eat. We're going to die. And so they find some loaves and some fish, and Jesus miraculously multiplies it. And so in verses, you know, 1 through 14, you find this great miracle where from the small amount of food, suddenly 5,000 people are fed with leftovers. It's awesome. And it even says, therefore, then when the people saw the sign that they had performed, they said, wow. This is truly the prophet who has come in, who is to come into the world. <laughs> they ate food and was like, Bop, that's the Messiah, right? I mean, that's all, that's all it took. And so that's what you find in the beginning of this chapter. In the middle from 15 to 24 is the classic place where Jesus walks on water because after the miracle, of course, you have those people that are trying to kill him. So he goes up on a mountain. His disciples go out on a boat on the water and later he joins them by walking on the water, of course. And so you have that particular miracle that's happening. And then after that, he arrives with the he arrives to the boat and he, and he joins those particular uh, disciples and they row to the other side of the lake where a crowd is waiting for them. I don't know if they saw them or what. But when they saw Jesus on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, that's not really what they're asking. Okay? They weren't concerned about the time. You know, 3.30, oh, great. You know, that wasn't it. It was a hidden question. It's like, because, you know, I'm hungry. <laughs> Again. It was a question about food. That's already what was on the mind. The text is already showing us. And Jesus answered him. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. <laughs> like, he busts them right out. He's like, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, are you going to feed us? <laughs> so they said to him, well, uh, so he says this. He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, well, what should we do so that we may work the works of God? And so they're asking this, this, this particular thing, and Jesus says, he goes, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. I don't think it's stuck, because in verse 30 it says, so they said to him, well, then, uh, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? L listen to what they're asking. What work do you perform? Because our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Hint, hint. It's kind of ridiculous. And Jesus explains, and he says, actually, it was God that fed the people. It wasn't Moses. And so they continue. They, they just flat out say it. They're like, Lord, give us this bread. 
And so Jesus says this, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. If you go back two chapters, you'll hear kind of the same sentiment when he's talking to the woman at the well, right? It did not sit well. It didn't sit well with the people who were listening to this. It says, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. And when it says the Jews were grumbling about him, they're not talking about his enemies. They're not talking about the scribes, the Pharisees, all those people. And they were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like, they're downplaying him now. A minute ago, they were fed, and they were calling him the Messiah. Now they're like, okay, actually, I recognize him now. This is just Joseph, Joseph's kid. And Jesus knows that they're grumbling. He says, do not grumble. And so in verse 48, it says, Jesus says this. He says it again. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is, here we go, my flesh. The Jews began to argue with each other, and they were saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus then says, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Okay, this took a completely different turn. I mean, one second, they're just trying to be fed, right? They want some food. This wasn't supposed to go down this particular path. You're also kind of wondering, what are the disciples, like his closest disciples, thinking at this time? Because now he's talking about something that sounds a little bit like cannibalism. Therefore, verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And they left. They were out. That was it. Can you relate? This particular study that we're going to go through comes at a, a pivotal time. I have spoken with so many people, it's beyond count. I was, I was thinking, was it eight or nine? I can't even remember. The number of people who have not left just the church, not just left Echo, but have left the faith. Because they can't understand how a God, a good God, could be so wrathful. They can't understand how there could be so many people on the planet right now and that the majority of those people are on the pathway to hell. It's too difficult for them to grasp. It's a difficult teaching. But rather than lean into it, Rather than roll up the sleeves and do the work of trying to understand, okay, what is going on here? What does God have to say about that? They're done. They leave. They're out. You think this story is applicable then? It's applicable now. I want us to look at the difficult texts that we see in the Bible. I don't want us to dance around them. I want us to walk right up to them. I want us to approach them. Speak about it. See what God is going to tell us through his word. It's going to require so many aspects of your heart that I hope you are ready for. 
Some of you, you don't want to hear certain things that the Bible tells you because it feels like all of a sudden there's this standard that makes you feel guilty and you hate the shame that it heaps upon your head. Can you deal with what the Bible will tell us? Some of us, we become angry, just like this particular gentleman that I was recently talking to. He, He was furious. He was furious that God would be so destructive. And he's done. He's finished. Where's your heart in regard to anger? Are you greedy? Sometimes we come to the word of God and we're going to search it to find just what we want. We already have our argument in our mind. We're going to build our construct so that it supports it. This is very common. Can we hold each other accountable to that? Can we honestly look at Scripture in such a way that we're willing to say, you know what? I think you might have a little bit of self-focus in that. Will we have that kind of courage? And are we fearful? Are we too afraid to look at Scripture? Especially when we see difficult teachings. Even, even Peter, the Apostle Peter, he says in 2 Peter that there are all these different concepts that Paul wrote about. It's kind of funny that Peter's pointing at Paul. (laughs) Peter says some tough things too. But he's pointing back at Paul. He's like, these things are difficult to understand. But then he also says, but many times people will take them and twist them to suit their own purpose. So will you have the courage to approach the scriptures? And will you have the humility not to be too greedy, but but to dive right in? There's your primer for next week. It was just a little bit shorter than usual. I'm sorry I went too long. Happy Father's Day to you guys. Consider consider the um, infections of the heart. Consider your hearts as we go into this. I want to say this real quick. Exploring God's word, despite how much warning I just gave you, is also extremely exciting. Extremely exciting. I can't tell you how often I will be looking into a particular concept And I'll begin to see attributes of God, attributes of myself, that I'd never noticed before. It's like a discovery. So I invite you. I invite everyone who's here. I invite you, you know, if you want to invite people as well, I invite you to come and be a part of this adventure because that's what it will be. Because it is very exciting. In the meantime, let's all pray to God that he creates a clean heart inside of us. Please pray with me. Gracious God, I thank you so much for today. Lord, I thank you for Father's Day. I thank you for the fact that um, we have dads in the world and that uh, I had such a tremendous father and I had uh, a a dad who cared and loved for me growing up. Um, And Lord, I just ask a special prayer for those who suffer because they have not had that type of father. My ultimate prayer, Lord, is that they would find that peace and that they would find that love in you. Position us, Lord, so that we might be able to provide that picture to those that need it. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all of it. I thank you for the parts I don't understand. I thank you for the parts that make me angry. I thank you for the parts that um, make me feel that, that sense of guilt or that I ought to step it up. I thank you for all of it. Lord, I ask that you be with this church, that you be with myself, that you allow us to explore your word in such a way that we are not fearful of where it may take us. Lord, help us to examine our hearts and take out all selfish motives so that we can arrive closer and closer to your truth. 
Great God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for the praise that we've been able to lift up to you. I thank you for the hearts that are in this room right now. Please bless them this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.